Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Jim McCray and I'm chatting with documentary filmmaker Michael McCormick ahead of the release of his fabulous film Breaking Out. Hello. Hello, Gemma. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Michael. So first, I always get in trouble because I never ask this. Uh, can you describe uh, your film Breaking Out? Oh, God, you're so mean. How could you start with that one? That's the that's the one over the years that oh that's the reason it took so long. <laughs> Elevated um, pitch. You have to have it down. Oh, I know. I'm the worst at these. I'm like, it's all about the nuanced. It's all about, like, you know, structuring things in such a way and non-linear storytelling. Like it's yeah, these these are the difficult ones. But yeah, just the logline or whatever you want to kind of put forward. Well, the, the logline would be that uh, Fergus Farr was told at eight years of age that he'd be dead by twenty. And yet he lived a long and uh, full life, full of love and music and uh, created a very special, um, special story that, that runs like a fairy tale, really. And I changed, I changed the log line over the years so many times because, uh, because I, di- I, I honestly still don't know. And thanks be to God that uh, elements are on board because I, I suppose the, wor- the worst part of it for every filmmaker is how to how to sell the film um, because I know I've made the film I wanted to make. I know that it's the, uh, you know, that it's the story I wanted to tell, but it's actually trying to get across what this is um, because it's a little bit on paper. It sounds like it's a music documentary, but it's not really, it's the story of a life, but it's not really, it's a little bit of a fairy tale. It's a little bit bonkers. It's funny. Uh, it's tragic and it's uplifting. It definitely is all of those things. And you do get your emotional roller coaster in there and it has a fantastic soundtrack. <laughs> like I'd say Did you know did you know the soundtrack? Um oh I would have known those songs, but I hadn't heard it. Like I would have I would have heard all those songs growing up through the years, but I actually didn't know too much about it. So it's actually a lovely informative piece for me because again, all those things would have been in, like you know, I would have gone to see the frames when I was, you know, in my a, w- a while back I'm not going to date myself either <laughs> a while back I would have gone to you know see all those gigs and enjoyed all that music but I wouldn't have had a context for it so it's lovely to get that bit of local legendary history in there as well in a, in a, yeah. in a place in a, in a way you can time it and you've definitely dedicated a lot of time to this because this was 10 years in the making was it 10 years of filming and 15 years to complete, yeah, to get to raise the funds and yeah, to get it all finished. Which sounds, uh, and I suppose um, in, in talking about it, I should say, don't ever make a film this way to all filmmakers out there because you'd want to be out of your mind. Um, but the funny thing is, once I was sucked in, I knew that I was going to be there till the till the very end. I certainly never thought I was going to be filming for 10 years. But, you know, I think when you see the film, you realize how, uh, you know, I knew how good the story was and I couldn't turn away from it. Uh, so I had to keep going. I wanted to try and finish it while, while Fergus was alive. I only found out after he passed away that he never had any intention towards the end of letting me finish it. He wanted to bring me uh, all the way because I think he saw it as his legacy in the end. But it's funny you should say there about the frames because this is the thing that, that I wanted more than anything is that I'm one of the, I'm an old Interference fan. I saw this band play from the age of 14. And so 
I wanted to, when I eventually grew mature enough to understand that I wanted to share my heroes with other people by telling this story because it was, a lot of people know Interference's music and Fergus's music through the frames, but might know of, of the band and might know that in the audience for the band in their heyday were members of the frames, the Mary Janes, Mundy, all the musicians who were coming up at the time were looking up at that stage and going, this is where we want to be. I want to be in a band that looked like they don't give a, give a damn about what, you know, how to be pigeonholed. They're just going to create music and uh, see where it takes them. Unfortunately, it didn't take them where they wanted to go. And there might be a million reasons for that. Uh, I never understood it. Um, a lot of people said it might have been the muscular dystrophy um, that... Uh, wasn't it wasn't allowing record companies to see beyond that to what they could achieve but there's no doubt for people who won't know anything about this music that uh you know you come away from this film going why didn't i know about fergus O'Farrell? yeah definitely i was in there there's so many many familiar faces um as you're watching it uh, and like that like you i love there's the section when you're kind of back capturing the the vibe of, of that era and it's it's like it is it's kind of like a love letter to Dublin as, as well as that even genre of music in a lot of ways that is you know as someone who got to enjoy those live gigs it's 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 a nice testament to that time and because yeah. Dublin changed so much after that like the the vibe of the city the like even the the notion of being an artist in it with you know, it's, it's some music has changed the atmosphere of, yeah, that kind of artistic spirit within Dublin has changed. Like it's just, and I do think this film does manage to capture all that in a way that even if you have no knowledge of film like me, you really enjoy it. Yeah, it's funny. You're, you're dead right. That, that um, It kind of stands out in the fact that I went back to film in uh, Winstanley, the factory where Fergus lived and, uh, you know, rehearsed with his band and became a kind of a hub for musicians in Dublin at the time. And that building is now standing there empty uh, when, you know, and we don't see that happening as much anymore. You know, we don't hear about squats that musicians are hanging out in, coming together, because how can you? Because it's so expensive to do anything as a musician anymore. So, uh, yeah, it's a kind, it's a kind of a love letter to that era, but it's also a love letter to musicians and and heroes and realizing what matters. You know, particularly at the moment when we know how much they're all suffering. Um, that you know, when you think about the moments in your life, I think about Fergus O'Farrell songs, and you know, you think about music. So. Hopefully, when people see this film, they're reminded of the fact that all our greatest memories are music memories. Like, yeah, and that's it. It's there used to be, like the the whole notion of being a musician has changed. Like, you don't make music money from music; you make money from the merch. And if you're not of a certain size, you're you're not going to make it. And that's kind of sad. The notion of being a professional musician, like even if you look at the era that we're in now with COVID, like the amount of people that have been screwed over because you make a meager income from gigs and from merch, you know, and, and yet how many people are listening to your songs on Spotify, like hundreds of thousands. And then it's gone. And the government is like, book up, Sonny Joe, get over it. Like, you know, retrain and, and be a digital marketer or something. Like it's, I don't know. It's, it's not, shocking. 
Yeah. It's absolutely shocking, Dasha, you know, and this, this film, it's kind of poignant as well that Fergus was in his own personal lockdown, uh, particularly over the last couple of years, and that what we are going through at the moment, um, you know, it makes it makes the film even more important. Uh, I think in a way that people get to see it and realize that there there is always a reason and a way to keep going. Because I don't know how musicians do it. He he found it very difficult, obviously, because he didn't have. Uh, he couldn't go traveling to promote his music, particularly when the muscular dystrophy progressed. He did for a while, but then it, it was taken away from him. So the ability to actually make a living as a musician for him was becoming harder and harder. Um, and nowadays, as you said, I don't know, we, we, you know, I hope the people come out of this film and they remember, and they remember that, you know, this government has let, let down uh, musicians so badly and let down the film industry so badly that you know the arts are, are you know the most important thing as far as I'm concerned to keep us all on the straight and narrow mentally so for God's sake you know um, get out there I mean I've heard a good few musicians saying as well lately that you know it has to stop now it has to reinvent itself you cannot allow Spotify, the Spotify's of this world to um, continue the way it's going, you know, because there are musicians out there who don't tour. You know, we've all had bands we love in the past who just aren't live acts, but we love listening to them. How the hell are they supposed to make a living? Yeah, I think this this film is a lovely kind of testament to that again. That's And it's it's nice reminder of things that we can lose if we're not careful and don't support people and don't throw your favorite musician if you quit on Patreon, you know, to yeah. keep them going. Because that's it, it's, it would be the end of bands. And you see that, that's something again, I don't want to kind of give too much away for the themes of the film, but you see that about, you know, these small losses and, 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 and you know, how people are coping with them and, and the dynamics of the band as well. Like, you're just, that. I think it's, I think it's okay to go into that, Gemma. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful line from Ferg about how, you know, every time the muscular dystrophy took something away from him, I mean, he was initially standing at the mic singing, then he was playing the guitar, that was taken away from him, then he could play the piano in a certain register, which allowed him to, to write different songs that was taken away from him. Then his lungs, he was down to one third of his lungs. But the whole time, as he said in the film, these were like little bereavements every time he lost something. But he had to find a way to move on. Because if he didn't, you know, and that, you know, that, that is the whole thing that to take from the film, that he did always find a way to move on. And that he used music and he, he used reinventing himself and how he approached music as the way to move on. So, yeah. and there's yeah. a bit of maudlinness to this film. It's it's very upbeat, and it's about celebrating his life rather than mourning losses. Those are there, and I think that's a really good balance to hit because it just means it's not a difficult watch, you know, and. You know, yeah. you could go into the nitty gritty of, of every single loss and pare down exactly what that means. But it also the fact that he's a very funny character, as as expressed uh, in this film. Like I think he's a great crack when you get a few points in him. 
Oh, sure, she's and he had a, he had a few points in him quite often. But basically, he somebody asked me there recently, like, was it really tough for me as a filmmaker to to be witnessing all this this pain and you know the difficulty he had with the disease? And I went, I, you didn't. Like when I think about being with Fergus O'Farrell, I was more mostly corpsing myself and laughing my head off all the time because he was the funniest bloke I ever met. You never saw the disease. You he he didn't allow you to because he had too much. Once he had you in his company, he had life to live. He did not want to dwell on it. So you're right. It was so important that this film wasn't modeling. It was so important that this film was a reflection of his personality, which was a really funny bloke who was extremely talented and uh, knew how to tell a good yarn. But no, definitely a dis disgusting disease, but it never defined him. So I'm just going to talk about yourself a little bit. Um, so can you tell me about how you got into filmmaking and where did your inspiration for your art form lie? So I got into filmmaking like a lot of people, I suppose back in the day, it goes back as far as interference in Ferg, but I would have been playing in bands. And when I was in the band, we were making our own videos. And uh, when you start dabbling in something like that, you, you, you find you just stumble. like, I feel very fortunate. You stumble into wanting to make something as good as possible. And you want to find out more about how you can do that and then you realize uh, in a very short amount of time that what you are is a storyteller that at one stage you're questioning yourself and you're saying am I a director am I a producer what am I what am I doing here and then you realize as you go from project to project and 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 it might be in different genres uh, from documentary to entertainment and then you say actually what you're doing all the time is and the reason you do this is to tell stories. Uh, if you can tell a story well in any in any in a short form or long form way, that's that's the buzz for me. Um, and obviously, it goes without saying that if you shoot with somebody over ten years, you um, you have a bit of a challenge in trying to find a way of telling that story well. So, uh, I would say immediately that. Um, you know, to anyone uh, who's a filmmaker who has a brilliant idea for a project like this, um, do not make a film this way because um, it is just not sustainable. You can't build a career on making films over 10 years. Um, but at the same time, some of my favorite documentaries are films that took this long. So there must be a reason for that. But you, uh, you learn a hell of a lot on, on, a, on a road like this and what you should learn more than anything else is don't go off on one, don't go off and try and make a film until you have the backers, until you have people who are willing to put the money up front because, because otherwise you could get compromised. Now in the end uh, I didn't get compromised and I ended up making the film that I wanted to make and that's all I can take from it really because it was a, it, at, at times a harrowing experience trying to get there. But I can sit back now and go that uh, that I made the film that, that that I don't have any regrets about it, but um, and that you know I've told the most important story that I'll ever tell and I've told it well. So hopefully I have a few uh, projects in the pipeline and hopefully I can um, 
turn them into something and get the backing for them a bit earlier than this one. So you've actually, but you have a career, like you've been working as a documentary filmmaker with RTE and doing kind of yes. actual stuff as well. So that's the... Yeah, so... So I would have, I would have, I've made many, many documentaries with, with RT and, um, you know, you, it's a, it is a, it is a different world. Sometimes you're constrained by budgets, sometimes by time. So it's a great learning curve for, uh, if you have, um, if you're basically in it for the long haul and if, you want to make sure that everything you produce is is up to standard you find out uh, how to t tell stories and tell them well and to collaborate with people properly and to find the right collaborators and know how to work with a team because working on your own is a pain in the hole and um and and it's so much more fun actually uh, bringing any project to fruition with a group of people so in RTE the greatest thing about RTE are the people that I've, I've uh, worked with there over the years from brilliant cameramen and brilliant editors you know the they're the people who've taught me you know how to do it you know sitting in an edit suite with an editor who starts shaping a story for you before you know how to and you're kind of sitting there in awe you're going oh my god I would not have thought of that in a month of Sundays. And you walk away from that and go, but now I will. Now I'll know that you actually, you can walk into, oh, I think it was a it was a cameraman, Nick O'Neill, that said to me once, you know, he used to say to me that, you know, I went out uh, filming with a plan and the plan was too good, that you should actually go out and leave space for, ma for magic to happen. And it should be 20, 25% just left open in a day, in a week, so that you can just see what could come into the mix. And he was so right, because if you pack up, if you decide that when you're going out to shoot something that you know what it is, you're probably messing up and you're not, you're not allowing it to, to develop itself. I don't believe in cinema verite, but I do believe uh, in, in giving it a, an opportunity to be something other than what you see. And I just, just before, I actually have a question that I want to ask you about the funding, but before that, I actually want to just go in and, and dig a little bit deeper into just something you said there. So there are two, so obviously this was your passion project that you've been working on for eons, so mm. <laughs> 15 years. And you say that, but actually you're right, like a lot of the best documentaries have just been observed over a really long period of time, you know, and mm. that's, that's, I suppose, and that's it, like it's, they're done for the love of it. Which is probably hell and destruction, destruction for the <laughs> personal life of the documentary filmmaker. But it's lovely for people watching it. But <laughs> being commissioned to a piece is probably very different, and it's a different experience, and it's it's a different ownership because you don't own it. It's not your vision. It's it's someone else asking you to do something in your with your vision in mind. So it's more of a collaboration. Can you tell me a little bit about what that process is like and how the two things are different? Yeah, you're right. Um, I think there are times when, uh, I, like any filmmaker over the years, I would put in proposals for documentaries 
and they were the ones that I wanted to make. They were the, because it was coming from, you know, from me, these were the ones that needed to be done. And then you cop on and you realize that it, there is just as big a challenge if you're asked by somebody, if you're given a subject matter by somebody and they, they're, you know, entreating you with the responsibility of bringing what you, your vision to the table to tell that story. And uh, that's, that is as big a challenge and can be just as much fun to, to, uh, to achieve. So actually, I've, you know, and it's a good thing to have. As a, as a filmmaker, I, I never balk at too much. There's not too much, of, but I'll balk at some things, but there's not too much I'll balk at because there's always a way. Even when, you, when you get, somebody talks to you about a project and you're kind of going, oh, good God, I've seen this before. And then you go away and you go, but I haven't seen it actually done like this. So you have to constantly find a way of making it interesting for yourself. Because if you make it interesting for yourself, you're going to make it interesting for the viewer. And um, I suppose one of the things about, again, uh, why, why it's interesting with Breaking Out is that when you're making a documentary like this, where on paper, when you asked me to describe it, quite, the reason I find it so difficult is that in those early days when I was describing it, I would be terrified that people would immediately go, this is a music documentary. And I'd go, no, it's not a bloody music documentary. It's so much more than that. You have to, you know, it's, I think the documentary, and we've seen it over the last few years, is, is the greatest, of all art forms really because when it when a documentary is told well it's unforgettable like some of my favorite uh, cinematic experiences have been with documentary i remember walking out of capturing the freedmans um in the ifi and walking around for a week going what the hell just happened there oh my god my head is wrecked it it was it was just the most that's what you want you are walking out of of hoop dreams and just with your heart beating at 200 miles an hour and you're going, oh my God, what an amazing story told so well, you know, and you feel like you know the people on screen and you feel like you, you lived it with them. And, you know, isn't that, isn't that everything for a filmmaker that you walk, let people walk out of the cinema and they, they feel like they've lived the film. That's what you want more than anything else. All my life, I've looked up to him. I've revered his band, his songs, and his voice. Fergus has a fatal disease called muscular dystrophy. We always said it would never be easy. When Fergus was eight, the specialist said wheelchair by 12 and at 18. This is a huge eagle of a soul trapped in a very limited physical body. Music was something that I had to do. Oh, yeah. When we did a gig, it became like a huge special event. It was magical. Ferg was like our Jeff Buckley. This quest for perfection. With the record companies, says we're not gonna get a return out of this. Fear of his disability and kind of some sense that you know he wasn't long for this world. I can't live without Fergus. He's my power. What happened with Once was that feeling that if you want great songs for your film, call for... And I love her song. 
If someone had told me that the song I wrote was going to be performed at the Tony Awards, dream come true. Radio City! Oh, the world with the general condition it's a continual losing of things when Ferg calls you it's like a call to arms what I really want is for him to put this record out while he's still alive it helps to have a bit of madness in you I love you he's hungry for life I can't play the instruments anymore, so instead of playing instruments, I have to play people. You, you, so you spend years working on a project like this and you have the treatment in your head and you, when you get to a point where um, people think that when you're when you're doing an ob doc that you're allowing things to happen. That's true. You are allowing things to happen. But then when they happen, you and but you're pointing the camera in a certain in a certain way when you're allowing things to happen because it's what you want to cover. And then you have it all in your head. You walk away, and sometimes you film for a weekend, and and you walk away going, "I'm using nothing that, that I just spent the weekend shooting." absolutely nothing and other times you're so excited because there was five minutes that was just pure gold and now that that has decided that has taken you off in a different direction in how you're going to tell the story and but then it's like that thing i was talking about before you when you go into an edit suite with a, a project like this a long-term project and you're trying to tell it the story well you have to leave your treatment at the door and you have to go back to the beginning and look at all that footage from all those years and then uh, fight with yourself and fight with the editor to know that you're right in the approach you have and the approach you're taking together uh, and the terrifying nature of going through a process like that whereby every filmmaker knows, get to the stage of the edit and you go, oh Jesus Christ, I've spent all these years doing this. And it was for nothing because I'm I'm not telling this well. Oh Jesus Christ, this is really bad. I can't believe I fucked this up. This was such a great story and I fucked it up. And then one day you turn the corner and you go, Oh, thanks be to God. You can see the light. Across everything. That's all the musicians yeah. are doing the same. You're like, <laughs> like at one stage, you're sitting over your treatment, you're like, this is awful. <laughs> What's wrong with me? But it's kind of the creative brain as well. I think it has different settings. I think you have like a create setting, you have an edit setting, and it always looks the worst when you're in the, like, you know, edit culling setting. Yeah. You know, like when you're in the creative setting, you're like, this is the greatest thing that has ever existed. And then when you kind of get down to kind of starting to cut things out, it's almost like it turns a switch and it's like, no, you're gonna cull this, this is crap. Trying to go like, you know, what's, if, if the most miserable person was watching this, what would they think? <laughs> Well, yeah, no, it's very, very true. Would you prefer a deadline? So would you go, okay, well, if this was say, you were saying that the funding was difficult to get and I just want to double check. So you were filming for 10 years. So presumably you didn't have like a year of funding to get it out and to get it into the flower or anything like that. Would you have preferred if someone had said, you know, you need to get this out when it is. Like I know specifically this film definitely had a timeline it had to follow, but in general, what 
that makes sense. It didn't actually, Gemini, because the, because of the way the the funding, um, the the way I managed to to raise the money, it didn't have a deadline, and that was probably part of the problem. But it also meant that there were I didn't compromise at all. I made a decision at at one stage that um that the only person that was going to suffer in this process was me. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm saying don't ever make a film this way so you're, you're living off the land and having talked to the makers of capturing the Freedmans and and different filmmakers you know that's the decision you make if you come across a passion project which uh, the very worst thing that can happen is that you don't tell it the way it should be told then you've made a decision that uh, that this is not going to be uh, lucrative and this is not and, and this is going to be tough and that you will be doing it while making a living um, and that yeah that 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 is the most important thing that the, the it sounds ridiculous it sounds uh, it sounds ridiculous but it, it's that the art is the most important thing that that if you mess up the story You'll never recover from that, but uh, you'll recover from financial hardship, you hope, but not from messing up the story. So to uh, and I think mentally for any filmmaker, that is the uh, that is a good end result. Yeah, so actually, I wanted to ask, that was definitely something I wanted to ask about the funding. So you I see you have support from Screen Ireland, but would, would that have been at the later stages? And I saw as well, you did the godforsaken fundraising which everyone says it's so difficult like it's another yeah, job yeah. like it's yeah it, being a marketer on top of being a director on top of producing and a whole other skill set as well so yeah 100 percent. i'm really bad at it but you know, i'm really bad i'm really bad at it but i did it because i i i went into it because I wanted to share the experience. I knew there was a, there was a, a group of people out there that loved uh, Fergus and loved his music and wanted to see this film made. And I wanted to share uh, that experience with them. Uh, it's been a long process for, that, for them because they're still waiting for it. Um, and they've been incredibly patient. But I, I kind of hope that I told them from the off that if they got involved in this, it was for, that I would make one promise to them and that was, to make the film I was promising to make. I, I couldn't promise how long that was gonna take. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to make a film. And it's really, really hard to make a film when you're, you know, I had years of experience making documentary but for broadcast television, not feature. And so for Screen Ireland, for anybody, I'm a difficult uh, thing to back. Um, because I'm walking into a room with you and I'm talking about animation and I'm, I'm talking about reconstruction and I'm talking about the greatest person I've ever seen on screen leaping off it, but he's in a wheelchair. Um, uh, but this is not a disability film. It is uh, so much more than that and it's not a music documentary. And so it's an incredibly hard sell uh, for, for anybody. And I always knew that. So I would walk into a room half terrified and those moments where I did convince people were were the were the moments where I got to the next stage and I was able to keep going but 
I don't think anyone truly knew what the hell I was talking about until they saw the finished product. And uh, I was the only one uh, who went into the cinema in Galway uh, confident that it was it was going to be a good experience. I think for most of the other people who got involved, they were. They must have still been concerned that I might have thrown too much at the at, at the table, um, to tell the story. But I just kind of knew that, uh, that I'm sorry, Gemma, if I'm going off on a tangent, but it, it's kind of you. You're like the first time I filmed with Fergus O'Farrell, I knew that he was he was amazing. I could watch him all day. I said, if I can get his personality on screen and I can tell his story like that everyone's going to love and going to uh, love the film. So, uh, so once, once I did that, that was grand, but uh, getting back to the, the funding of it. Um, yeah, I think passion projects are probably the most difficult for anybody to back. So I don't feel aggrieved at all by the difficulties I had. I think it was a hard sell. And I really thank the people in the crowdfunding world who who got on board, and I thank Screen Ireland for coming on on board in the end. And there was a private investor, Ivan, uh, is probably uh, as much as I can say, but uh, you know who uh, who also um, understood uh, what it was at a certain stage. And without them, I definitely I would have got there. But it might have taken a bit longer. That's it. They say as well that um, in childbirth, there is a chemical that's released in your brain that eventually makes you forget the process. So I wonder, <laughs> there be this, like, you're like, oh my God, I was 15, it was the worst, so long. And then you get it out there, you get it to the world, people start enjoying it and you get good feedback. And when you forget all that now, when you be like, oh, I can't wait to start the next 15-year project. No, you must be joking. Um, <laughs> I know I've heard that as well before. No, absolutely not. It was harrowing. I I woke up uh, with. Um, do you remember that that nightmare you used to have when you when you left school for about ten years afterwards, where you woke up and you were still doing the leaving cert the next day? But I had that for over <laughs> over ten years with breaking out because I was I was terrified I would never get it finished. I was terrified that it was all going to come to nothing. I was terrified that I wouldn't follow through on the on the promise I made to. Ferg to get it finished so uh yeah no I, I I would not go back into that process again I would only um I think I think the the like I said passion projects get made in a variety of ways and it's normally a difficult process but but making films is difficult and you need all the support you can get and you need to surround yourself with people who believe in the project. Going on solo runs is bad for your health. Yeah. Well, so shooting it was a piece of work, but I imagine editing that much footage is as difficult. Was the edit process something you were doing continuously or was it something that you went, okay, at the end, I have a room full of memory cards and tapes. Go back to yeah. Rita. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I had stuff on on uh, SP. I had uh, XD cam. I had DigiBeat. I had 
well, I from for my own reasons I shot on on different types of formats, Super 8 as well. But um, uh, so you have all those formats. So you are editing it as you go along because you're trying to sell your your project to people. So you're you're cutting little sections of it. But when you go into the edit uh, with the editor that you've you've uh, brought on board, um, you go back to the very beginning because no all editors and certainly the ones that are, are worth their salt, they may they may listen to you saying that you know what you, what you want and you know what your treatment is, but they no editor believes any director. So they go back to the very beginning. They look at everything and they know then what is there and what isn't there. And that's a very important thing because as you get later into the process together, you both know whether or not you have the coverage for, for a certain thing. And I had, um, I had 10 years of footage and then I had uh, the opportunity to look at that and then decide how I was filming the rest of it and decide uh, uh, what was and what wasn't needed to tell the story. Um, and I ha had an editor that I'd chosen to work with in Mick Mahan that wasn't going to let me away with anything and was going to challenge me on everything. And he did. And that's what I wanted because I knew how close I was to it. And uh, I knew that if I didn't get challenged, there was a chance I would mess it all up. So, um, so yeah. Um, you you do edit as you're going along, but then you have to go back to the very beginning. But um, getting so close to the edit and editing after that many years of somebody that you presumably get to know so well and get to know their friends and family, it must have been a very emotionally difficult edit. Yeah. Um, so um, there's a scene in the film with Glenn Hansard, where, which, which I call the um, ultimate duet towards the end of Ferg's life. And he died two weeks later after filming that. So I didn't go near the footage for, well, actually, I probably shouldn't have gone near it as soon as I did because I, I spent a fair amount of time grieving. And in fact, let's say I was grieving in for, you know, a fair bit of the edit process as well. And it wasn't until I got over the grief that I was able to to really concentrate on the on the job at hand and get down to the nitty gritty because he was yeah he became like a brother um uh yeah he was one of the the best people i ever knew the funniest fecker i ever knew uh, we are all the funny people in our lives are the people that you know uh get us through and he he was that for a hell of a lot of people and he was that for me so it, 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 ha, it is a difficult experience. It's a difficult experience every day. And again, I remember meeting the director of Capturing the Freedmans and he asked me about my journey uh, very uh, graciously. And I said to him, do you ever leave it behind? And he said, I'm in court next week with uh, somebody in Capturing the Freedmans. And he said, no, you don't. And you're never going to leave it behind. But how could, how could I? I mean, he's, uh, he, but as I said, I, I walk around, the, the grief is gone now. And now it's um, a celebration of him. Yeah, I know. I just, I was just picturing that to, to kind of surround yourself with somebody every day after 
you know, watching that and then knowing their friends and family so well that I would just, I don't know, I could just picture it being just horrible, like just very, it's almost like slapping yourself with a stick all the time, you know, like it's just kind of any thoughts or anything like that is just reopened and oozing. Was like, yes, oh. and you're 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 reopening it again, now, Gemma. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 actually, no, no, no. But the funny thing is, you're right because the fact is, you, what you have to do as well is, you feel the pressure to deliver for his family and for his friends, and then you cop on one day and you go, you can't take that pressure. You can't put that on yourself because if you do, you're going to mess it up. So you have to ignore all those factors when telling somebody's story because everybody has a different way of telling the story and every single one of the people who knew him, including his, his sisters and, you know, his bandmates would tell the story differently. So whenever I'd meet them, I'd say, and they'd be intrigued, they'd be going, is it, is it going to, what's it going to be? Is it going to be, the, you're going to tell the story the way I tell it? And I go, no, I am not going to tell the story the way you tell it. This is my film and I'm telling it the way I'm telling it. So you can beat me up about it, but it's not going to be the film that you would make. And that you just have to make sure that people know that and understand that. There's a million ways to tell them for a story, just like every story. And this is just one. There's, you do that really well with you get the two perspectives in where you're interviewing him and his wife about how they met with the pens with that little animated sequence like it's really nice like just the way it's kind of interspersed and then the animation is gorgeous yeah, but it is yeah, you yeah, get yeah. two slightly different perspectives like and then he's like gets hit in the eye like it's it's very warm and I think that's again a lovely way to relate to the whole film where it's a very kind of warm but funny like and there's humour throughout even though it is again very sad you do like it is it's, it's a very easy watch because those moments the humor is there the warmth is there continuously yeah thank you because that was important because if if uh, that's how he that's how he got through that's how he got through life and a disgusting disease it was with humor and uh humor and music that should be the title. I'm, I'm changing the title now. Humor and music. That's the title of the film. We're gonna have, that's, that's what I he did. I say to love that. Just email them now and I said that we just like <laughs> Just change it now. <laughs> November 6th. <laughs> just get the email everybody. It'd be grand. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. But no, that's, uh, he was, yeah, he, that, that, that is exactly it. That um, you have to, I knew I was going to break people's hearts. In fact, I remember Mick Mahan saying to me, the editor, at one stage of the edit process, he said, oh my God, you are just going to kill people here. People are just going to be in, in floods. And I, at that stage, I turned the corner. So I said, nope, it's okay. We're going to give them, you know, we're going to give them relief. And, you know, it, it, at the end of it, they will have gone on the roller coaster, but they will feel uplifted. That is the whole thing about Fergus O'Farrell, that it's an uplifting story. If I live uh, my life as well as him, I'll be happy. Excellent. And then coming back now to the most important thing, I suppose the focus of it all would be the music, the sound mix. Because it's a very important thing on a film like this to get right. So what was yeah. your decisions there were like getting people in to to work with songs and getting rights to stuff i suppose they yeah. on music if they didn't have a record deal that would be a little bit easier but sometimes especially for 
Yeah, I, I, if I told you that story, we'd be here for a week. But uh, yeah, it involves a, a publishing company in America and it involves two years of negotiation and uh, uh, yeah, a very difficult process. Um, a very difficult process, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I think like every um, element within musicians' lives, from the publisher to the way music is sold, I think they need to be working on behalf of the musician a bit more than they do. Um, I think it's important to uh, that publishers realize that vehicles like this are sometimes the only way to get somebody's music out to the world and uh, that they should be seen as a positive thing. Um, uh, and quite often institutions don't know their artists as well as they should and uh, therefore make it more difficult for them to uh, to get their music out there. So uh, I worked with the, the amazing Morris Caesar, uh, who uh, is a composer who's, who worked with Jim Sheridan for many years um, and was also a member of Interference um, and a wonderful individual. And when I approached Morris uh, and said, I'd like um, the underlying soundtrack to be allusions to or a lot of it to be allusions to uh, Ferguson's songs, some of which Morris had co-written with him. So he knew where I was coming from. And so you get these really beautifully um, more subdued versions of, of songs like Gold at certain points of the film. You get allusions to other songs. Uh, and I, I was so delighted. But, it was like I was saying earlier, like you, you find the right collaborators. And when you're working on the project this long, you gain the trust of the people um, involved. So Morris was one of those people whose trust I needed to, to, you know, I needed to get that trust because you get that trust on a long-term project and then they, they're going, where the heck is the film? He's, is he, what's this guy? Was this guy a total waster? Was he... You know, he said he was making a film. What the fuck? What's taken so long? And so that moment when myself and Morris were working on the soundtrack and he was getting to see the film because a lot of it was was performed to the film. He was kind of getting to see it and, and realizing that what I had promised was was up there. Um, and as well as that, you're you're also look, you're also using music. Um, from a guy who was recording constantly a huge back catalogue of music and you want to make sure that you use the right music. I mean, there were times I filmed with him and he'd be recording in the middle of the night after a few too many scoops, um, uh, singing cold with no backing with his headphones on and... Uh, I'd be there, God, it's just perfect. Uh, and you'd use that ahead of the, the, the piece that was recorded in studio or recorded in, you know, on stage somewhere. So you, you're, yeah, you're dealing with the legacy of what is a really serious body of work. And if you get that wrong as well, um, 
you're also, you know, you if somebody had walked out of the film and went, yeah, he was okay. <laughs> you know, you, you'd know that there was something wrong because the music was so good. So it's, but you can very easily, if you go back and pick the wrong live concert from Led Zeppelin, the one where Jimmy Page was slightly out of tune, um, or, you know, Robert Plant had got a little bit pissed before the gig, yeah, and you use that to show people who Led Zeppelin were, you know, it probably wouldn't, I've seen it, I've seen it in music documentaries where they've used a piece of music for somebody and they're slightly off key and they're going, oh God, why did you use that piece? I know you probably thought that it was being real and, you know, but good God, the audience are only hearing this for the, well, maybe not in the case of Led Zeppelin, but in the case of Fergus O'Farrell, a lot of this audience were only hearing him for the first time and he was going to be heard in the best possible way. And I think he is, and I think he's captured in the best possible way. I think that's what this definitely does. And it's a beautiful homage and the celebration of his life and his work and his music. And you've done a fantastic job. Thank you, Jim. Definitely. That's thank, you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. No problem, Jenna. Really enjoyed that. I can't wait to see Friday. the next, in 30 years' time, what the next one will be like. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but no. Don't curse but, me. <laughs> no.